with on the idea of circumcision. All right, we'll accept them as Christians, but, but they've got to be circumcised if they're going to be one of God's children. So it got to be such a knockdown blow up in Antioch that they finally decided we're going to go down to Jerusalem and we're going to meet with the apostles and we're going to have a big discussion about this and settle this. And of course, we laid this out on the map here. At the top here, you can see is Antioch. This is where the discussion was. This is where the missionary journeys were starting. And then at the bottom of this area, uh, arrow is Jerusalem, and this is where the apostles were. And so they went from Antioch down to Jerusalem to have this meeting. When they get there, Peter speaks, and uh, Paul speaks, Barnabas speaks, uh, James, the brother of Judas, speaks, and the decision, the conclusion is they don't have to keep the law of Moses. It's been nailed to the cross. They do not have to be circumcised. But they said, we've decided there are a few things that it would be good to write to the Gentiles and to emphasize to them. And so three things they said we're going to write to them and emphasize. Number one, to abstain from things polluted by idols. Number two, to abstain from sexual immorality and from things strangled and from blood. I want to suggest to you that this is not new. It's not that here in Acts 15... This is frequently called the Jerusalem Council when they have this meeting. And the Jerusalem Council, this is not that they came up with three new things. The commandment to abstain from idols, was it like before Acts 15 it would be okay for them to um, fraternize with idols and things polluted by idols? No, this, this isn't new. Could they engage in sexual immorality before they stated this in Acts 15? Of course not. What about uh, partaking of drinking blood and things of that nature? No, these are things that have always been wrong. They were wrong under the law of Moses. In fact, if you go back to the patriarchal period, you might remember in Acts chapter 9, it was stated that they were not to eat and drink blood because back there in uh, Genesis chapter 9, we were told the life is in the blood. It's always been wrong to do all three of these things. So when they had this discussion, they're discussing whether or not they have to keep the law of Moses, and they said, no, you don't. They don't have to be circumcised. But we think it's good to write and emphasize these three things. Why? Why would they pick out these three things to write to them? Now, what we're going to see in just a minute, I'll answer that in just a minute. Last week, we dealt with the first one, to abstain from things polluted by idols. And we talked about meat that was offered to idols. And when he says things polluted by idols, it would be not only things that were offered to the idols, but things that would associate you with the idol. And so if they're having a feast in the idol's house, and maybe they've already had the worship. When it's over, they've dedicated this meat, and everyone's going to sit around and eat it. That's polluted by an idol. You don't go in there because it's going to associate you with it. It's going to make you look like you support it. And so this raised a lot of questions with the first century Jews. What can you eat? What can you not eat? When can you go? When can you not go? And so when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Paul breaks this out in five or six steps. He says, if it implies this, if it's a stumbling block, if it offends your conscience, and he goes through a number of different uh, scenarios to help them answer these questions, which are very helpful to us today when we're trying to decide when should we associate with things. That's the same things. Is it a stumbling block to someone else? Does it associate you with evil? Does it hurt your conscience? It's the same principles when it comes to matters of conscience. I can go back and look. So when the Holy Spirit decided to record these things in the first century about the eating of meat, this is just not incidental. There are some principles there that apply forever. Now, the eating of meat offered to idols, I've never encountered that. I, I've never, that's never been a stumbling block to me. I've never seen that in 30 years of preaching that any congregation's ever struggled with that. But we've applied these principles a lot of times because uh, that's why they're there for us. All right. Now, the second thing that is mentioned here is sexual immorality. You might say the first one is obvious in dealing with idols. Why would he mention sexual immorality? And then the third thing, things strangled and blood. Do you see any connection between these three things? Okay, all of these things are connected to idolatry. And keep in mind, these cities that Paul and Barnabas had gone to, every one of these cities were known for idolatry. Several of these cities had temples to false gods. In fact, do you remember in Acts 14? Remember 14 for them. What happened? They tried to bring sacrifices for the two of them. And they treated them as gods. They treated them as Jupiter and Zeus. And they said, we're going to honor you. We're going to make sacrifices. Every city was dealing with these things. So the point is, we're going to emphasize to these Jews, here's three, or to these Gentiles who are now Christians, these are some issues they're going to be facing. These are issues they're going to be struggling with. So let's emphasize, not only can they not worship the idol, but the things that are going to associate them with the idol, the things that are going to endorse the idol, you got to stay away from that. Secondly, sexual immorality. What did that have to do with idol worship? Well, sexual immorality, number one, was extremely common amongst pagans, amongst the Gentiles, and it was frequently a part of their religion. In fact, many, in fact, most of the temples to their false gods would have what they called temple prostitutes. And so, uh, and some of them had homosexual temple prostitutes. And so what would happen is you would go up to this temple to worship, and one of the ways that you would, quote, join yourself to that false deity is you would have sexual relations with one of the temple prostitutes. And that was part of your worship. And if you were a female, you would go to the temple and there would be the male temple prostitutes and you would join yourself to them. One of the things, incidentally, that uh, modern day, the modern-day homosexual movement has done is they have looked at some of these passages in the New Testament that condemn homosexuality, and they'll say, the Bible doesn't actually condemn homosexuality. They'll say, the Bible can, they've approached it from three standpoints. Number one, they say, the Bible condemns um, fornication, not homosexual marriage. 
And so if two homosexuals wanted to get together and have a, a loving, devoted relationship, a monogamous relationship, then that's okay. What it's condemning is fornication. They would say that as one approach. A second thing they do is they look at passages dealing with homosexuality, and they say, well, what the Bible's condemning there is rape. For instance, Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember the men came and they beat on the door and they said, send these men out that we may know them. They said that wasn't homosexuality being condemned, that was rape. They were going to pull these men out and they were going to rape them. And they said, of course, rape is wrong. Rape's always been wrong. So this passage from Genesis 18 that y'all believe is a, a passage condemning homosexuality, it's not homosexuality, it's rape. And these other passages, they say that you believe condemns homosexuality. They'll say it's not homosexuality. It's just uh, these loose relationships where people were sleeping around. A one-on-one -on -one monogamous um, homosexual marriage, that's not condemned. And then the third thing that they would say is some of these passages that you're turning to to supposedly condemn homosexuality are actually passages that are condemning homosexual prostitution in the temples. And so these are not talking about homosexuality in general being wrong. These are talking about homosexual prostitution in worship to an idol god. And so that's three ways they've approached homosexual passages in the New Testament. Now, there are clear answers to all of those. That's not what we're talking about right now. But I did want to mention that because that is something that is brought up about the homosexual prostitutes in the first century. Um, it's interesting, I was uh, doing some study and I was reading that in the city of Paphos, let's see here, here we go. You remember Paphos here? Paphos, where'd Paphos go? There it is, uh, on, the city, on the island of Cyprus. You remember that uh, on the first missionary journey, they landed at Salamis, they went into the synagogue and they taught then they went to the other side of the island, to the city of Paphos, and that's where they met Bargesus, Elymas, and Paul struck him blind. In that particular city, in Paphos, I was reading that uh, that city was rife with immorality and particularly extensive religious prostitution was a major part of heathen worship in Paphos. So the cities that they're going to, this is just uh, normal. And so that's why they're bringing this up. All right, now what about this third thing that's mentioned here? And this is things strangled and from blood. The pagans, as a part of their worship, they would drink blood. This is part of what they would do to honor their God. They would kill the animal. They would take the blood from it and they would drink it. I just can't imagine what that must taste like. That is uh, uh, appalling to me to even think about such a thing. Occasionally over the years I've had something happen where, you know, you'll end up swallowing some blood and it tastes so bad. I can't imagine drinking animals' blood, but what are they talking about things strangled and from blood? Sometimes people have read this and they've concluded, well, what that means if, it, if an animal has died by strangling, then you can't eat that animal. I don't think that's really the emphasis. The emphasis has to do with the fact that one of the ways that normally if you're going to kill an animal and you're going to bleed it or you're going to drain it, 
you would slice its neck and you would turn it upside down and you would bleed it. You'd let the blood drain out of it. In order to avoid doing that, what they would do is they would strangle the animal and you don't bleed it and the blood stays in it. And that way, when you cut into the meat, it's just filled with blood, which is utterly disgusting. But that is what they would do. Now, sometimes people have asked, in fact, I mentioned to you earlier Genesis 9-4, but you shall not eat the flesh with the life that is in it, that is the blood. Genesis 9-4, that's always been one of God's rules. Why? He says life is in the blood. And so don't eat this, but this is something that the heathens did. Now, sometimes people have raised the question about how they eat their steaks. And I showed you this last week, and I showed you that um, there are different ways uh, that people cook their meat. And if you go to a restaurant, they're going to say, well, medium well, medium rare, rare. Um, and sometimes Christians have looked at Acts 15, 29, that you abstain from things offered idols, from blood, and from things strangled. And they look at this bottom one, and they say, ah, oh, this, this is a violation of this. I don't believe this is a violation of it. It's just nasty. Um, because if, now I said that last week and I got a lot of attacks afterwards, so I got to be careful with that, but um, I don't know how a person eats a steak like that. If you do, again, I'll say what I did last week, you're not sinning, you're just gross. So um, I got some amens. Now, um, how you like your steak, this is not talking about that. The Jews would eat steak, or they would eat meat, in which they would slice the animal's throat and they would drain it, it is virtually impossible to get all the blood out of an animal. This is not, there are always going to be some traces of blood in an animal, and when you get through, it's going to look like the rare steak. And so that is not what's being discussed. The practice that is being discussed is what the heathens did. They would strangle the animal, they would not bleed it, they would drink the blood. This is probably a prohibition against things such as a blood pudding, a dishes with uh, blood sausage, things with large amounts of blood in it. Uh, so how you want to eat your steak, that's up to you. I'd recommend the top two, but um, that's your choice, what you want to do with that. All right, any, um, any questions about any of this before we move on from these three things? Uh-huh. That's right. Um, some people think that, that uh, is, it's bloodier that way, and that is not really the case. Um, and the more you cook it, doesn't make the blood go out of it. That's not what it is. Uh, it's actually changing the meat and the protein in the meat. Um, see, now I want to sit here and tell you about how to cook a steak. I mean, <laughs> a good steak is charred on the outside, but it still stays juicy on the inside. But that has nothing to do with Acts 15. Yes, sir. I was going to say, I actually uh, worked one summer with a group of folks that were slaughtering some of the animals. Uh, so I've seen what they do when they start to use the protein and the like, byproducts of the meal and stuff to bled in the proper way. Yeah, anybody in here who's a hunter and you um, take care of your own meat, process your own meat, 
Uh, if you raise cattle, you know about all of this. And so um, this is talking about um, the things associated with idolatry. This is not talking about how you eat your steak. Okay. Um, when they got done with this, um, well, before I mention this, let me say this. Some people have wondered, why was this list given to the Gentiles? Uh, and there's all sorts of theories. I think what it amounted to is simply, these are some things that the Gentile Christians were going to be faced with. They are stumbling blocks. They are serious temptations. And so while they said, you don't have to keep the law of Moses, you don't have to be circumcised, here are some things we're going to take this opportunity to write to you about because these are going to be serious. And I want you to note, well, I'll hold this. You notice I've got a highlight of the Holy Spirit. Don't let me pass that up because I want to tell you something about that as we go. All right, so let's go to Acts 15, 21. Let's see, David is not here, is he? Are you the reader tonight? All right, Acts 15, 21. Dan's going to read for us. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren... Uh, let's see, that's not it, is it? Acts 15, 21? Or do I have them mislabeled here? Acts 15, 21. Okay, all right, let's try again. For Moses there. had had throughout many generations those who preached men in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, stop there for a minute. After telling them, here's three things that you, can't, that you can't do. We're not going to bind the law of Moses, but here's three things you need to make note of. Then he says, for Moses, throughout the generations, had those who preach him in the synagogue. People have said, why did he put that in there? He just said, you don't have to keep the law of Moses. And then he says, Moses had those who preached him every Sabbath in the synagogue. What is the point of that? And commentators, they lay out all of these reasons I think it's as simple as this. I believe he was simply stating why the Jews are struggling with this. That is, this has been preached every Sabbath in the synagogue. Why are they struggling with this? They've been hearing it their whole lives. Every Sabbath this has been preached. I think it's as simple as that. We understand why this is difficult for the Jews to get beyond. All right, Acts 15.22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, to send chosen men of their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Okay, I want you to notice, when they got through making this decision, it pleased the apostles and the elders, and then it says, with the whole church. That is, the whole church is going to be supportive of this decision, and if we go back to our map here, now we're going the opposite way. We're going back from Jerusalem, and you follow the, the line, back to Antioch. So the decisions made in Jerusalem, they're going to go back to Antioch, and they're going to say, this is what the apostles and the elders, this is the decision that has been made. Now, it's interesting to me that it says they send Paul and Barnabas back, but it says they're going to send with them... Uh, Barsabas and Silas, Judas, who's called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men. So why, when they send Barnabas and Paul back, do they say, we're going to send a couple of the leading men from Jerusalem to go back with them with this decision? Why would they do that? Do they not trust Paul and Barnabas? 
Barnabas, I mean, Paul's an apostle. Do they not trust them? What's... Okay. Okay. These guys are going back to give them assurance. Remember, when this uh, discussion broke out in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are saying, no, you don't have to do this. And the, Jude the Judaizing teachers were saying, yes, you do. Now, what happens if Paul and Barnabas come back and say, we were right? And that's what it amounted to. They were right. Of course, Paul's an apostle. Of course, what he said was going to be right. But what happens is they take two of the leading respected brethren to go with them, and they say, yes, this was the decision. It's confirmation. All the bases are going to be covered. Why would they want to be very careful about this? Because, brethren, this is going to be an issue for the rest of the New Testament. This has got to be established. It's got to be documented. It's got to be understood. This is not just Paul saying this. This is not Paul's gospel, as sometimes people say it. This was the decision of the apostles and the elders and the whole church, and everybody was on the same page with this. Now, I want you to get this, too, because sometimes people will say, uh, well, what this uh, amounted to was the apostles, they got together and they made this decision for the church, and so this is a conference, and the Roman Catholic Church has used this as a pattern. And so they would say that when decisions need to be made doctrinally for the church, they follow the pattern of Acts 15, the apostles and the, the uh, descendants, uh, they get together and they make a decision, and it's a binding one. That is not what's going on here. You've got to keep in mind, number one, the apostles were speaking for the Lord. Do you remember way back in John 14 and John 16, Jesus said, all things that I've said unto you, the Holy Spirit will bring them to your remembrance, and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. The apostles had special authority from God. Secondly, the elders in the first century church, what was significant about these elders? Many of them had the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had miraculous ability and were speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice, this represents the letter that they sent back with Paul and Barnabas and Barsabas and Silas. And this is what they wrote. And I highlighted this in yellow because they said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to write this to you. What's the point of that? We didn't make this decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And then they said, and also to us. Where did they get the decision? The decision came from God. The decision came from the Holy Spirit. And so what happened is this question was brought up. It went to the apostles who had authority from the Holy Spirit. It went to men who had the gift of the Holy Spirit. They discussed this. The Holy Spirit gave them the answer. They wrote it down. They sent it back. And they said, here's the decision of the Holy Spirit and us. We need to understand this was not men sitting around making a decision. This was God giving the decision, and that is very, very important. All right? Um, now, this is the letter that they wrote. Let's start in Acts chapter 15 and verse 23 and uh, read through the farewell. 
wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. Stop there for just a minute. Let me make a point. They said, we've heard that there have been some brethren who have, saying you, who have said, you've got to keep the law and you've got to be circumcised. And then they said, to whom we gave no such commandment. I want you to notice, just as a side note, how easy it is to insert something in the Bible that's not actually in the Bible. You see, these men, all of a sudden, they just started saying, hey, you got to be circumcised. What would happen if they didn't have the apostles to go back to at that point? And these people started saying, hey, you got to do this. Could you see that people would start saying, well, we got to do that. And next thing you know, you've got a whole group of people following them, and they've got something that was not in the Bible in the first place. So they write back to them, and they said, we wanted to write to you because we know there's some people teaching this. We wanted to know we gave no such commandment. This did not come from God. In subsequent decades and centuries, have there been people who have started teaching things for which the Lord gave no such commandment? Yeah, I mean, how many denominations exist today? 43,000 is the most recent number I've seen. There's 43,000 denominations. How many existed in the first century? No denominations. How many churches existed in the first century? One. They all practiced the same thing. They taught the same thing. They believed the, the same thing. Now, out of the 43,000 that exist today, how many different things are they teaching? I'd say at least 43,000, right? Because if, uh, if you had two that were teaching the exact same thing, then what would happen? They'd be the same, right? So you're going to have to have a whole bunch of different things being taught today. Well, how does that happen? Well, if people pop up and they start teaching things for which the Lord did not command, and people start following that group, that's how you start having another and another and another. And in over 2,000 years, we've got 43,000 of them. That's why we always plead with people, let's just go back and follow the Bible only and... That's all we're asking. All right, let's, uh, let's keep reading. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. All right. This is the whole of the decision that was written. I've read people uh, arguing about whether these things still apply to us today. And I've thought, um, why would you be arguing 
um, keep yourselves from uh, things associated with idols? Of course that would still apply. Uh, keep yourself from uh, sexual immorality? Of course that's going to apply. And then they want to argue about things strangled and blood. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 9, it's always been that way. I, I see no reason to think that these are not still applicable today. All right, let's keep reading. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. All right, when it says they rejoiced, the tense this is written in suggests that they burst into joy. They are very happy. The Judaizers were wrong. Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. That is confirmed. Verse 32. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. All right. The fact that they're prophets mean they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit spoke through them while they were there. Verse 33. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Okay. Verse 34, I'll just mention this to you. Um, it's argued about whether verse 34 should be there or not, uh, that it seemed good to Silas to remain. Some manuscripts have it and some don't, and people make a big, huge ordeal over that. I think this is so uh, inconsequential whether Silas stayed there or not, I don't really understand why people get worked up about this. But uh, we're about to run out of time. But next time, I want to say some things to you about some differences in um, manuscript evidence. But for now, let's uh, skip on to the next verse. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. Then, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. All right. That is, we established these congregations. They need follow-up. And he said, let's have a second missionary journey. And this is what we've got here on the map. You can see they're going to cover a much larger area on this second missionary journey. All right, next verse. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. All right. I want to spend a few minutes talking about this. They get ready to go on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas says, let's get my cousin, Mark, who went with us the first time, and get him to go. And what happens is Paul says, no way. We're not bringing him. You remember he left us the last time. And the Bible says the contention was so sharp between them that they parted company. And Paul found a new partner, and Barnabas, he took Mark, and he, and he went on his own journey. Now, I'm going to leave you with this thought, and I'll pick it up. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be back next week because I'm speaking in Florida at the end of this week, but um, 
Who was right? I want you to just think about that. Who was right? Was Paul right? Was Barnabas right? Was it okay for them to have this knockdown, drag out contention? The Bible says a sharp contention between them. All right, we'll pick them and talk about that next time. Thanks.